This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in African American Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, James West, and today I'm joined by Elizabeth Schroeder Schleybach, who will be talking about her new book, Dream Books and Gamblers, Black Women's Work in Chicago's Policy Game, which is out now from the University of Illinois Press. Dream Books and Gamblers tells the stories of black women in the underground economy and how they use their work to balance the demands of living and laboring in black Chicago. Betsy is an associate professor of history at Lawrence University, and she's previously the author of Along the Streets of Bronzeville, Black Chicago's Literary Landscape, which is also out with the University of Illinois Press. Hi, Betsy. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Thank you. Good stuff. You've written this book. It's a book about black women and policy in Chicago. How did this happen? What point did you realize that you were going to write this project as a full book? It's an interesting journey. So I was actually working with the University of Illinois Press on my first book, and I was working with my editor and going through the reviews. And in the process, I lost one of the chapters. So we cut a chapter because honestly, it sounded too much like a lit review and it was quite theoretical. And so my editor and I, we decided, okay, let's, let's cut that. By virtue of that, I had to figure out what to put in there. And as I was writing the first book, looking at the ways in which Bronzeville's geography, the landscape informed the ways in which Richard Wright and poet Gwendolyn Brooks wrote about Bronzeville, I was sort of, I was trying to track down the people who funded the arts on the South side of Chicago. And there's the South side community art center, which was opened, I believe in 1941. And it's the subject of one of the chapters of that book. And I was going through their records and tracking down who was funneling money into the arts. And I found that policy Kings were donating large amounts of money to the Southside community arts center, as well as the Chicago defender and other vehicles for literary and artistic engagement. And I, I thought, oh, that's really interesting. These these guys who I thought at the time were not great people, were connected to the mob or the mafia, uh, were donating large sums of money to this beautiful Center for Arts and, and Engagement on the South Side. And I looked into policy more and I thought, policy, I, I don't know what that means. And I discovered that policy was simply Black Chicago's name for numbers running. And they called it policy because you took out an insurance policy or you took out ownership on um, a set of numbers, typically three numbers, which was called a gig, uh, that were drawn in lottery drawings in the morning and then in the evening. And so the men, it was usually men who ran this game. I, th- I thought it was just fascinating that people were gambling in this way to 
sort of make a better life for themselves on the South side, because as beautiful and as vibrant as Bronzeville was, when you talk about the arts, um, it was also a really hard place to live. Rigidly segregated, Black Americans would face violent reprisals for crossing the boundaries of the Black Belt. Um, and so many of them gambled because it was fun, um, because it was a way to imagine themselves beyond those strict boundaries. And so in that chapter of, of that book, I really focus on gambling and this how this performance of gambling and risk was in itself an artistic um, expression. And in that chapter, I, I don't really talk about women who were engaged in gambling. It's just sort of, um, why did this exist on the South Side? How is it related to the arts? But the, the chapter stuck with me and I thought policy gambling was fascinating. And I started reading more about these kings. Um, Nathan Thompson wrote a book called Kings. Um, it's an informal history of policy gambling and focuses on the men and on the South Side. And I thought, well, these men are married. Um, if they're kings, they're queens, right? So what were the women doing? Did they call themselves queens? Like, how, how should we talk about them? And so... As I started to open that up, and, and I read a lot of the Chicago Defender, um, more and more women were started starting to pop up in these stories, um, sometimes called policy queens. Other times they, they're not, but they're always in the orbit of the policy kings. And I thought, okay, there's something here. I have some traction. The Chicago Defender was sending me messages like, okay, th there are there's a, a group of women who are running this as well as men. And, and I thought, all right, I, I have to look into this further. And that's when I decided after a few successful conference presentations and, and encouragement from people in the field, that there was really something there to be uncovered. So you've mentioned Nathan Thompson's book. A lot of listeners are probably familiar with other work, the uh, Sean Harris's really great book on psychics and, and number running in New York. Who were some of the other really important scholars that informed this work, or who do you see this book being in, in conversation with? The book wouldn't have happened without Dr. Harris's help. So when I was in the first stages of, of even writing those conference papers, I emailed LaShawn. She had no idea who I was, and she was so generous and said, who are, what is numbers running? And I, I love your work. Can you tell me more? And she sent me copies of, of her articles um, about Stephanie St. Clair. And uh, just was really encouraging from, from the start. Um, so definitely her, her book published in 2013 is fantastic. Um, and the way that she examines labor in, in Harlem was instrumental to the way that I, I strove to do the same in Chicago. So definitely Dr. Harris's work. Um, also Victoria Walcott's book, Remaking Respectability. I read that book in an urban history seminar in graduate school and policy gambling um, was the subject of uh, across a lot of those chapters. And um, so in Detroit, they, they referred to numbers running as policy gambling as well. And I actually, there's one policy queen, Anne Roan, who was married to a policy king in Detroit, divorced him and then moved to Chicago and started making thousands of dollars in Chicago. So there's definitely a connection 
conversationally and in, in a historiographic sense with uh, Walcott's book, but then also the there's a definite connection between Detroit and Chicago um, in the primary sources as well. A third scholar, uh, definitely Devarian Baldwin, his book on Chicago and the Great Migration. He has a, a chapter toward the end where he examines boxing and and policy gambling um, in Chicago. And so that book too is definitely um, something that I, I envision this book being in conversation with. If I could add one more, Matthew Vaz just published a book. I, I think it's simply called Running the Numbers. And he looks at um, numbers running uh, in Harlem, and we were on an urban history conference panel together, and I was talking to him about my project, and he suggested that I go look at the Kefauver Committee um, on interstate crime and or on organized crime and interstate commerce, um, their holdings at the National Archives, and that was a fantastic uh, recommendation um, because I went to those archives and found just loads of material on policy gambling yeah picking up the that question of of archival or or primary material um you know you get you engage with a really rich range of material throughout this book were there particular archival findings that that really excited you or were really formative in terms of the development of the projects Oh, certainly. And this was the most fun for me. The most fun part was being in the archives and talking to archivists who also, the shout out to them, this this project definitely during COVID was, would not be possible without them. And having them tell me, hey, go look here, go talk to so-and-so, or I have just the folder you need. And um, one thing that an archivist pointed me to at the National Archives and in the Kefauver Committee on Organized Crime. Um, the So the FBI, a little bit about Kefauver, um, that's the name of the senator who in 1951 sent hundreds of FBI agents uh, to a variety of cities in the United States to investigate organized crime and interstate commerce. And Chicago was one of those cities. Uh, New Orleans, New York, um, and Miami are also on that list. So I was looking through the files on Chicago and the archivist was explaining to me how it's organized. And it's in one section of the archive, it's organized by family. And so I was looking for information on the Jones family. So Harriet Jones, George McKissick, and Ed Jones were referred to as the Jones brothers. They opened up a grocery store on the South side. They also dabbled in policy gambling and they were really rich. And so they became, um, they, they, by virtue of that, they were on the radar of the FBI and the FBI put and the committee put together several files on the family and probably the best source, primary source that the archivist pointed me to were, um, some slightly redacted tax documents and also um, look like accounting spreadsheets. My goal was to figure out how involved was Harriet Jones, the mother? What was she in charge of the business? How involved was she in policy gambling? And 
this document showed me that she was raking in as much of the profit from policy gambling as her sons. So she was taking an equal cut, the same as her sons, Edward, McKissick, and uh, George. It was incredible. I was like, oh my gosh, you know, there's the proof I need to show that she was an equal partner in all of these policy wheels. Um, and, and it was great. It was great. It was one of those moments where you throw your hands up and you're like, oh my, oh my God, there it is. Then also some other files from the Schomburg uh, Center for um, uh, in, in Harlem. I found some wonderful material from the Council of Federated uh, churches. Um, and these, this is part of the St. Claire Drake papers, um, that are housed at the Schomburg and it, within those files, um, the archivist showed me some interviews that the council of federated churches did with people on the South side of Chicago and Bronzeville. And in these interviews, they asked about a variety of things, um, and that, that I, I think were of great use to Caton and Drake's book, Black Metropolis, published in 1945. Um, but also in these interviews, uh, the interviewer always asked about policy. You know, is it near your house? Do you gamble? What do you think about it? Do people in your church gamble? And people were pretty forthright about it. Um, some were highly critical of it. Others were would say things like, oh yeah, we play, um, but you know, we've never won. Or, or most of the time women would say, oh, my husband plays, but um, you know, we're trying to get him to stop or something like that. And they would name the location of policy shops and how close or far they were from their residence. And so those interviews were, were very useful um, in, in trying to figure out the, the landscape of policy gambling and then also the, the discourse around it from within Black Chicago. Mm, yeah, I, yeah, I think your book does a really great job of, of mapping this, this landscape of you know, the formal and informal economy of Black Chicago and then also you know, the, the many different roles that the Black women played um, within policy. Um, Thinking about this this question of landscape in terms of just the kind of scholarly landscape, and, and in particular thinking about your own positionality, um, you know, as as a white scholar, how do you think about your relationship to this material? How do you try and do justice to the material that you're working in? Is that something that that is at the foreground of your work? How do you think through those those questions of the subject and then specific archival materials? Well, it's really difficult, uh, as you know, and I think what's vital is that our work is not extractive, that I'm not doing this just to get tenure or to to be promoted for my for my own good. Like the and and I, I think first and foremost, I I have to think about and one of the the phrases that has followed me throughout my publishing career and teaching is, is this my story to tell? And I've, I've struggled with that at times. And so I, I guess I'm still in the process of trying to figure my, my place in the field out and what stories I should pursue and, 
and and I guess in what orbits um, I, I should exist, uh, because I, I don't think that there's a solid answer to that. The the landscape shifts all the time, and you I think as you have to keep continuing to think about your positionality and where you are in this this moment. Um, the ways in which your whiteness and your privilege, um, whether you're tenured or untenured, can inform the work that you're doing. And so I guess that's a messy way of, of saying that that's, that's something I'm always thinking about. And I, I try to make sure that my work doesn't merely extract, but that it's instead of taking from the community, it engages with it. I think my work as a, a public scholar too um, has been a place where I can I can give back, and in particular, working with black scholars in Bronzeville, like Lionel Kimball at Chicago State. That that's been a way where I can in, engage with with the community and, and not just talk about it. I, I guess I also try in this text as much as possible to quote the black women. Uh, themselves. Um, I, I I want this book to be their story. And I think I say toward the end of the introduction that this is my glimpse of their world. And by putting that, that sentence there before we jump into chapter one and then two and three, I'm hoping to signal to the reader that th- this is my version of something that's vast and complex. And I, I want to invite other scholars to to pick up where I've left off or, you know, if, if I haven't been able to access the interior lives in ways that are satisfactory, I'm, I'm hoping other people, like I, perhaps I've cracked the door open a little bit so other people can, can jump in. The answer to that question, it's, it's always, I don't know. I, I just sit with it, I think. Um, and I'm trying to figure it out on a daily basis, how to do this without taking when I shouldn't take. In terms of the broad chronology of this book, it really runs in parallel to the Great Migration. Such a rich literature on, on black migration into Chicago that's that's emerged. Where do you think this book contributes to that story? Because by now we, we have a fairly well-established story of the Great Migration into Chicago and, and many of the names that appear in in this book are are probably familiar to some listeners. How does looking at policy specifically, how does that maybe reshape or or tweak those overarching narratives that we have about the Great Migration and and about Black Chicago? Well, I, I think in some ways the story of policy confirms what we already know while uh, confusing us. Um, because uh, to start, I, there's definitely in the book a, a south to north trajectory. And even in Chicago itself, uh, I took some time and did some GIS mapping of or arrests and policy shops on the south side. And you can see, starting from like 1890 to 1968, you can see that the location of arrests, if you start at the Chicago River, and the loop, just a little further south of that, so like 35th Street, 25th Street, the location of arrests and the location of policy shops follows the southward migration uh, along Lake Lake Michigan that scholars of, of Chicago will be very familiar with. So sort of this 
inside the city southward migration of black Chicago from 35th street uh, down until like the 1950s when we get down towards the university of Chicago at like 57th and, and uh, 59th street. And so the, the pattern of arrests and the geographic location of arrests mirrors that Southeastern shift um, police pursuit of policy gambling sort of, sort of follows that geographic trend. Um, as far as the great migration it, policy gambling, you can, you can see it, um, following the, the trends of the great migration. And, um, there's always this rumor in Chicago that Chicago adopted policy gambling from New Orleans. And that's actually the topic of a, of a, project I'm working on now is trying to figure out what is that connection between New Orleans and Chicago when it comes to illegal gambling. But also um, with gambling, uh, illegal gambling is all over in all of these Black communities, North and South. So in a way, the people are moving, um, they're taking policy or numbers with them, but they're also leaving it behind. Um, and I think that's a, actually a more accurate representation of the Great Migration is that people are traveling back and forth between the North and the South. They're not migrating singly or like in one fell swoop. It's sort of a progression. They might stay for a while in Memphis and then move to, to Chicago or Cleveland. They travel back from Chicago, back to Jackson, Mississippi. And so um, as I was sort of tracking illegal gambling in the United States. And I was writing this project, I started to figure out that policy is it's in almost every urban setting and it's almost conversational how, how it operates in Northern cities like Chicago. Um, but then also Southern cities like Birmingham, um, they called it different things, but illegal gambling in the lottery form was everywhere. So let's talk a little bit about some of the most prominent women, I guess, the main characters of some of the chapters. Your second chapter, you, you talk about these two women who you describe as Chicago's first policy queens, Elizabeth Slaughter and Udora Johnson. Why are they so important for the trajectory of this story? So um, Elizabeth Slaughter and Eudora Johnson, um, she becomes Eudora Johnson Binga. I think in 1912, I believe they get married to Jesse Binga. He's, he um, opened and operated the first black owned bank on the South side of Chicago. Johnson Binga and Slaughter. I start with them because they, in some aspects, they're very similar women, but in other aspects, they're very different. And I think what they offer is an expansive way to think about policy queens. There's more than one way, I think, to have a, a policy kingdom, I guess, if we're going to roll with the queen metaphor. They also offer very different yet complementary narratives about what it means to be a Black woman in Chicago as the 19th century winds down and the 20th century winds up. So whereas Devarian Baldwin's book, uh, Chicago's New Negroes, is an excellent way that talks about, I think, Black masculinity in the early 20th century, I, I think that Slaughter and Johnson Binga provide us with really interesting ways to think about Black womanhood and a type of Black womanhood that's not divorced from gambling 
And this gets into very interesting discussions of respectability, um, what's proper. There are very interesting class dynamics at play. So for example, Slaughter was trained at the Armor Institute on the South Side to become a milliner. And she was a very successful milliner in um, Louisville. And then she moved her business permanently to Chicago. So she was a businesswoman. She was an entrepreneur. Johnson Binga, she was related to the most famous policy king at the time, John Mushmouth Johnson. And um, they had migrated to Chicago from St. Louis. And so Eudora was John's sister. And also, uh, John Mushmouth Johnson was dating and engaged to Elizabeth Slaughter. And so all of these people knew each other. And and um, so you have these two potential sister-in-laws. And I say potential because John Mushmouth Johnson died. And he, he died very, very wealthy. And Eudora and her mother wanted control over his assets. They wanted the, the um, inheritance. And Elizabeth Slaughter also wanted the inheritance because she saw it as rightfully hers. Um, and they go to court and eventually the money is funneled to Eudora. So I, I'm not clear on the relationship between the two women, what they thought of each other. Eudora says some pretty terrible things about Elizabeth in court um, and about her brother's relationship with her. But this brush with the informal economy does not destroy their reputations. Eudora marries Jesse Binga and... Um, uh, that launches, the, I mean, their marriage is is all over the papers. It's, it's he opens his bank and they're, they're the subject of much of the press. And then um, Elizabeth Slaughter marries, um, eventually marries, and she and her partner open up a novelty shop in Evanston, Illinois. And so what this chapter does, I, I think it proves that there are many different ways to walk through Black Chicago at this time and keep one's respectability intact. Black womanhood at this time um, is, is very dynamic. Um, and, and like Black Chicago, I, I think it's under construction. And this is the same time that you have Ida B. Wells in Chicago and Frederick Douglass is in Chicago. And so Slaughter and Binga Johnson, or Johnson Binga are in the mix with the most respectable uh, black figures in, in America at this time. And they're very solidly associated with policy gambling. And so I, I think it's just a good way to sort of kick off my examination of black womanhood and policy gambling, because the women show that there are multiple ways to exist in this space. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. So we move from, from these two women who are really formative in the development of policy in Chicago and then move to a figure who's perhaps the most prominent or the most famous of the policy queens you talk about, which is Harriet Jones. 
So tell us a little bit about Jones, how she's able to make a fortune in policy, and in particular, the relationship between her and her sons. So Harriet Jones was married to Edward Jones Sr. And Edward Jones was, uh, he's the Reverend Edward Jones, um, was a very famous uh, Baptist minister. They had a church in Vicksburg, Mississippi. Uh, They fled the city um, because of its violence and um, moved to Chicago when the three boys were, were very young. And a few years after settling on the South Side, Reverend Jones died of an aneurysm and um, he left Harriet Jones and the sons. The sons at that point in time were a little bit older. Um, I think the oldest one was at Howard, the younger one, he was in college as well. And then the youngest one was a high school student. And Reverend Jones left them a sizable inheritance. And I haven't confirmed what was done with that inheritance, but at that time, the older Jones brothers come home and they were had been running a taxicab business. And it was rumored that they were running a policy gambling shop outside of the back door of a tailor shop on the South Side. So it, it's some, some lore that um, Harriet Jones gave them a portion of the of the funds to invest in policy gambling. I really wanted to know how involved was she in the business and what options were available to a widow on the south side of Chicago who had a very famous husband who suddenly passed away. And what were the options available to her at that time? Um, What really helped me understand her role was uh, those the t- some accounting documents from the National Archives, but then also some really interesting stories from the Chicago Defender. And I start my introduction by explaining and sort of describing in as much detail as possible a photograph I found from the Defender where it's a group of African-American men in business suits, and one of them is handing a check to another group of of African-American men. And at the bottom, the caption reads, Aaron Payne gives donation to the executives of Provident Hospital. And the caption reads further that um, this is from Harriet Jones. And the Jones family has always donated to Black Chicago institutions. And I thought, oh, that's interesting that she sent her lawyer to be in the picture. And she didn't appear in the picture herself. Because that contrasts with, for one, what I've learned from LaShawn Harris's book, from the way St. Clair operated in the press in Harlem, and the ways in which LaShawn Harris talks about the personality of, of that policy queen. Jones had a very different strategy. If anyone was going to appear in the paper uh, affiliated with her family's name, it would be the sons. Even if she was st- you know, still profiting greatly from the policy gambling business and the Jones family owned and operated wheels all over the south side of Chicago. And so she was making a lot of money, but she was never the one to position herself as the one running the policy business. It was always her sons and, and even their, their formal economic enterprises like the grocery store or the 
milk delivery business. She was quick in the press too, was quick to attribute those to the sons. So your book does a really great job of talking about some of the more formal, if not necessarily always acknowledged roles of black women in policy. And then you pivot and there's some really interesting work that you do around these adjacent roles that black women take up in the policy games. And one of these is this idea of of black women as as mediums or, or fortune tellers. So how does that role connect to this broader ecosystem of, of policy? They're very uh, tangible, I guess, links between um, women like Harriet Jones, who whose family has all, all these wheels on the South Side. And so Nathan Thompson, uh, in his book, he attests that the Jones brothers employed spiritualists and mediums to help divine winning numbers. And um, so in my chapter, and also with the help of LaShawn's book, is I I try to journey down that avenue a little bit, and and I'm trying to figure out what does mediumship, what what do fortune tellers do on the south side of Chicago? And that chapter in particular focuses on Black women's work as mediums during the Great Depression. And there's ways in which like sanctioned spiritual practices like uh, Lucy Smith Collier's church, they, they sort of had to contend with policy gamblers. And some of them went so far as to employ mediums during the church services. Um, and, and these weren't like mainline Protestant churches. These were perhaps storefront churches um, would employ mediums to read uh, and divine winning numbers for people in the congregation. I mean, for a fee, of course. And so there's this really interesting space where Black women, um, as serious uh, spiritualist practitioners, are able to carve out a place for themselves in capitalism by offering people access to the best numbers. And Black Chicagoans were, were very competitive. Christopher Robert Reed in his scholarship does a great job of telling us, conveying that competitive spirit. And I see access to the best numbers, trying to figure out what the best combination of numbers would be, consulting spiritualist guides for the best numbers. I see that as evidence of Black Chicagoans trying to edge out each other um, to win these lotto drawings. And um, Black women entrepreneurs uh, seize on that competitive um, spirit and they're able to to make a living that way. And and I would say uh, grab some respect too. So I, I think the fact that the Jones family employed diviners and spiritualists uh, lends them credibility. Yeah, it's really interesting the way that you map out these different strategies to achieve social or economic respectability. Um, But then, of course, you're also very clear in saying that women like Harriet Jones or Elizabeth Slaughter or some of the mediums we've just talked about, they're very much the exceptions to the the narrative of policy in Chicago, not the rule. And it's it's far more common for black women to be harassed by police, criminalized for for their role in policy and and for gambling habits more generally. You've got uh, one chapter which focuses specifically on on arrest records. So how did you make the decision to to frame this chapter around arrest records? And and what exactly did those records reveal to you? 
I think that moment in the book is is sort of a, a pivot. So the the first four chapters really focus on Black women's work and how how women carved out a space for themselves within the Black community. And then the last two chapters sort of pivot to how Black women are surveilled and pursued by the police, um, how their labor is cast by well, yeah, by the by the mayor, by the police department, um, and so it's it's this interesting shift in the book to looking at these sources and asking, and I was trying to figure out, okay, what can these arrest records show us about Black women's experiences? At the same time, these records are written by police officers, court officials that have an interest in in making sure policy gambling ceases to be. Um, a lucrative option for Black Chicagoans. At that moment, I was trying to figure out how much could they tell me about about Black women, and then how are these records sort of an index to um, the racism and the relentless pursuit uh, by the Chicago Police Department? And I, I say a little bit about that at the beginning of that chapter, um, that these records, they're they're fraught because they're written through um, they're written by these police um, a policeman and policewoman. Um, but what I think they can tell us is that if, if we read them carefully um, what I've taken from some of, of the records is that black women were selling policies slips out of their homes. They saw their, their homes as a site of respite, but also uh, a site of labor. And I think that we can read that in very interesting ways. Um, if you look at the timestamp on the arrests, you can see that most women were arrested uh, in the late afternoon to early evening um, and were arrested in the presence of children. Uh, and so I think that tells us that Black women were primary caretakers of dependents. Um, they're usually in the presence of younger dependents, but also older dependents as well. And, and then there are moments um, where there, the the warrants or the arrest records, they offer you um, a glimpse of um, what the women were wearing, what they were carrying with them. So like women were carrying leather purses and compacts and wearing heels. And, and so it's, I think that's uh, there's a, a mere material culture aspect to those arrest records that was really exciting to me to get an idea of um, who the women were, how how they dressed themselves, what they carried with them. But then at the same time, I, I have to to um, to stop and think like how much can these records tell me because they're they're written by um, at some time like incredibly racist white Chicago police officers. Um, and so I tried to measure those that information against what the Defender um, and what Ebony and what Jet Magazine will tell you about policy gambling in the Chicago Police Department at that time. So I, I tried to contextualize those arrest records to get a, a, the most accurate picture of the women that I could. And I guess the other side of, the, of that chapter is... Um, 
the police department and the mayor, um, what they think of policy gambling and the labor of black women is fully on display um, in the way that these these records reduce women to that information left on, on a pink arrest, arrest sheet. You mentioned it briefly there, and I'd just be interested to, to touch on it more. So the role of the black press in particular, sources like the Broad Axe or the Defender, they're really important sources in and of themselves in terms of giving you access to the stories that you're telling in this book. I wondered if you could speak a bit more about the institutional relationship between policy and, and Chicago's black press how exactly some of those prominent newspapers or magazines navigated the line between celebrating a criminalized activity, but also acknowledging the really important role that policy continue to play in underpinning a lot of social and cultural networks within Chicago. That's a, a great question. I'm glad you mentioned the Broad Axe because I think the the Broad Axe and the Defender do it in very different ways. When I my work with the Broad Axe uh, focused on really trying to figure out who people like um, Jesse Binga, Eudora Johnson Binga, and Elizabeth Slaughter how they were perceived uh, by Black Chicago. Um, the, the Broad X was, was an interesting mix of sort of a little bit of gossip. They had a column called Chips, and that would mention the comings and goings of, of various people in Black Chicago. And so and it mentioned that Slaughter would vacation with Edward Morris or, um, you know, a vacation in ben- Benton Harbor, Michigan. Bingo was doing this and they were throwing a Christmas party or, or something like that. And so it was an interesting mix of sort of who's doing what, when, but then also um, harder hitting journalism. For example, when Binga Johnson, the Johnson Binga family, when their house is, is bombed. Um, so the broad X was, I used it in a way to, to sort of gauge public perception of, of people associated with policy gambling and the defender. I would, I would say the reporting on policy is much more, much more, nuanced. Um, The Defender included plenty of articles from Black ministers and sort of the church-going set that was very critical of policy gambling, um, that they wanted to to rid the South Side of this this vice. Um, Quite famously, during the Great Migration, the Defender published a list of do's and don'ts for newly arrived migrants from the South. And there are some articles when it comes to policy gambling that that still does that sort of instruction. Like this, if you're going to be a good Chicagoan, stay away from this, that. Um, but there are other articles that that there some articles are are kind of playful. I'm thinking of articles by Al Monroe, and there are other articles that were that sort of were warning. You know, landlords don't let people sell policy slips outside your door cops the cops are are aware or they're they're hip to this sort of enterprise and you can be held liable for um, people who do illegal things on your property the defender to me the way they talk about policy gambling confirms something that st Clair drake and horace caton say in black metropolis that it was that policy was viewed as on the level and that everybody was doing it. Um, and I, I, there's another article where the 
defender interviews a pastor about policy gambling. And the pastor said, well, if if I was critical of every policy gambler or policy king in in my congregation, my offering plate would be empty every Sunday. Um, and and I, I appreciated that interview because it, it, it conveyed the sense that this is a reality of Black Chicago and um, we're, we're going to come, you know, we'll, we'll deal with it when we have to. Um, and I, and I think the defender is, is pretty even handed, um, on that, on that front. Yeah. It's really interesting. I think you engage with these different publications really nicely throughout, and it's, it's nice to get a sense of the individual perspectives of, of different periodicals within Chicago and, I think, you know, a couple of times you mentioned the quotidian life of of policy in Chicago, right? And it's just a sense of policy as being just part of the day-to-day lives of so many people and the specific ways in which black women engage with policy and then the ways in which it impacts their lives on a day-to-day. Thinking forward in terms of what you might be working on next or projects you might have in mind for the future, I know listeners are always interested to hear what kind of stuff authors are working on. I'm kind of turning my sights south, um, looking at the connection between New Orleans and Chicago and policy gambling in particular. And so there's there's always been this sense that uh, Chicago inherited policy gambling or some form of it from New Orleans. And um, I'm, I'd like to see if I can, what, what evidence is there of that? And what does the informal economy, um, the illegal lottery specifically look like in New Orleans? Because New Orleans has rich, chaotic history when it comes to black labor and um, the Ill- illegal lottery, especially um, the Louisiana State Lottery was, um, it's a creation of uh, the post-Civil War Reconstruction era and lasted until about 1892. And then that's that's when you you start to see um, more participation uh, or participa- participation in the illegal lottery and so I'm I'm sort of trying to chart out what that looked like in New Orleans um, in in around 1892 to 19 the the early 20th century and thinking about the ways in which um, the just the the rich history of New Orleans would inform this particular type of informal economic labor. Can't wait to hear more about that over the next next couple of years. Um, thanks so much for for taking the time today, Betsy. It was really great to talk to you. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate your interest and in, um, getting to talk about Chicago with you.